Well, I'm, I'm, man, I'm glad you guys are here. Thank you for being here. I, I'll be honest, in, like, in, in moments in the last year when, I, when I'm like preaching to you know, computer screens and we're not meeting in person anymore, in the, in the, in the weaker moments or in the, in the more down moments, I was like, I don't know if we're ever going to get back together again. I don't know if church exists after this or, you know, or it's still going to be important to people or not. And so I'm just glad you are here um, I wish more people were here tonight because we're going to talk about a story that I think is so important. Um, and it's, I, I blame uh, this story and the ideas behind it for a lot that has gone wrong in my life in all the good ways. Um, um, I, think, I think what we'll talk about tonight is part of the reason why we're, we're probably never going to fill this room, and I'm okay with that. But uh, this is a great story, and it's a powerful story, but like a lot of great stories, um, it, it loses some of its original potency over time. When we forget about the context and we don't really think about it, it becomes kind of something we just talk about and, and just pass by without giving it the attention or the impact that it's due, right? I, for instance, if I talk to you about the Wright brothers flying a plane, you guys go, yeah, yeah, I know. They're the first one that did the plane or whatever. And you don't really stop and think about that. And, and really stop and think about that for a minute in context, it was 1903 when the Wright brothers did that. 1903. That's insane. They built something, they got on it, and they flew in 1903. That's only 20 years after the first gas-powered car engine was patented. They just started driving, and these guys flew something that they built in 1903, and Orville didn't die from a heart attack till 1948, which might be the most miraculous thing, that the heart attack didn't happen, you know, a year or two or during that first flight. They flew something, right? But we, we lose the context, not, not even just because, well, that was a long time ago, and we forget how different things were, and so, you know, we don't think much about it. We've got, I got a toy airplane I can throw out back, and it flies, who cares, no big deal. But even now, we don't really think about the context. I mean, a, a, a few weeks ago, one of the Kardashians probably made more news than the fact that, like, we landed on Mars and took pictures. Like, on Mars. Mars is, I, I, I looked it up, at its, at its closest... It's 35 million miles away, and that hasn't happened in recorded history, although, you know, based on the way they rotate, eventually we'll be that close to them. At its maximum distance, it's 250 million miles away from us. 250 million miles away from us. And we built some, not we, I didn't do any of this. I can't hardly turn my phone on or update it without something going wrong. Human beings built something, flew it to Mars, landed it on Mars, took pictures and got the pictures back here somehow. That should blow our minds. And it's just kind of like, eh, yeah. I mean, that's, think about how far away, 250 million miles. Uh, Rayburns, you just flew with multiple kids from Germany, uh, which probably felt like a, a million miles uh, with all those kids on that plane. 250 of those flights at least, that happened and they sent back pictures and it, and it worked. And we're like, eh, whatever. Like, we lose the context and the potency of the story, right? And the story of Philip meeting the Ethiopian eunuch is a bit like that because we now live in this kind of small world. We're getting pictures from Mars and not hardly thinking anything about it. We're scrolling past it to get to the next funny meme. Yet in this world at this time, it's, the world is still a very, very big place. 
it's still a very big place. Now, we have the ends of the world come to us all the time. Just here in Hattiesburg, which is, you know, nowhere, globally speaking, uh, we love it, but it's not really any place really huge or big or important. You can go and get food any place in town. You can eat food from someone who is born anywhere from Mexico to Korea to um, Thailand to whatever, right here, right? The world kind of comes to us now. But Jesus had told his disciples that I'm going to send you all over the place, right? I'm going to send you to uh, Samaria, and I'm going to send you to all these places. And then he says, and to the ends of the earth. And this is an ends of the earth story. The Ethiopian eunuch is going to be as foreign a person as you can really come up with, right, in this situation. He encounters someone truly other, truly alien to him. And we'll talk through what, what, what a few of these things mean. So he's, first of all, he's an Ethiopian, uh, which is kind of on the far reaches of kind of their known world. In fact, in the original Greek, Ethiopian means burnt face, which is going to get at like the fact that uh, even for the dark complexion uh, folks that he's dealing with, there are darker complexions. So visibly, he's going to look different than them. He's Ethiopian. He's working for royalty from Gaza, and he's a eunuch. Everything about this person is fundamentally different and foreign in every way. As an Ethiopian, he is racially other, probably in a very obvious way. As someone from Gaza, he's culturally other. As an African Jew, uh, and he may not have even been a Jew, but uh, based on what you know, context here about going to worship and stuff, most people assume that he was, uh, you know, of the Jewish faith. But he was an African Jew, which there, there was such a thing at that time, and actually still is. He was kind of religiously marginal, and as a eunuch, he's sexually, gender, everything ambiguous, very other, especially in a world that had very delineated lines on who's who and what's what and what role they play and what they can and can't do. This is an alien in the midst, right? And again, in the beginning of Acts, Jesus tells his disciples they'll reach people in Jerusalem, done that, Judea, done that, Samaria, been there, and to the ends of the earth, and that is where you find this person. This is the equivalent of one of those pictures coming back from Mars and seeing a face on it. So I want to read it again because I think this, this is intended to stretch the imagination of the kind of encounter someone would have. I love that people have cards that you can hear inside the sanctuary. That's just, isn't that, can we just find whoever it was that told guys that was cool and uh, give them a good talking to so maybe they'll convince people it's not. I digress. That's not really an important part of the Acts text. It's just I live right next to a street and I'm tired of hearing it. Um, and there's supposed to be a $500 fine now for those for the noise ordinance. And every time one goes by our house, our daughter Lillian just yells out, $500, which I think is great. <laughs> and I wish it worked like that. And I wish I got to collect because we would be wealthy. All right. Let's get back to Acts um, before cars or loud mufflers. Uh, verses 26 through 40 of chapter 8 of Acts says this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem into Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. I'm not sure what, I mean, I, mean, I don't know if he's just like is jogging next to it or what, which is kind of a funny scene to me, in my mind. He's just like jogging next to it, trying to figure out what he's supposed to do. Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked. 
How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him, which I'm sure Philip really appreciated after running next to it and trying to have this conversation. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from this earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Verse 35, Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And you'll notice we skip from 36 to 38. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. What a profoundly disruptive story this kind of alien encounter is, right? Now, there's so many parts of the story we could drill down on, but I want to stay broad tonight because there's something fundamental, I think, uh, to be seen here. There's something very deeply beautiful to me about this person, so outside of the norm, being so compelled by the story that he's reading. And what you see happening and playing out in the story is the difficulty that comes when someone from the edges of things reads the story and actually believes what it teaches. Now, again, imagine how compelling the story must be for this eunuch from Ethiopia to read Isaiah's writings about a sheep being led to the slaughter, silent before the shear, humiliated, deprived of justice, deprived of descendants. This is his story he's reading. I mean, we don't know much about his history, but in general, we know that on average, eunuchs did not choose to become eunuchs. The choice was likely made for him, probably prepubescent, in order to make him kind of safe around whatever important person that he was called to serve later on, particularly the queen, right? And this, this is a choice that was probably made for him, obviously a very painful choice, obviously a very traumatic choice, and it carries with it a lifetime of being other. If it was done at a very young age, which it, which it likely was done, it means he never went through the normal kind of puberty kind of things. It means probably just by looking at him, you could see something was different. It means there were side glances, right? It means there was probably jokes, maybe some names that were cruel that were kind of thrown out for folks like him, said to him or about him. All the things he would never get to experience. All because the world he was born into treated his body as their own, to do with as they thought was best and what they thought suited them. He was literally sheared, humiliated, deprived of justice, deprived of descendants. Like God? Wait, God is like me? You can understand why he has so many questions, right? Imagine how good that news would be to him when Philip tells him about Jesus. When Philip tells him about a God 
that, uh, the God that he worships who suffered as he suffers. A God whose own body was torn and bloodied and mangled by the powers that be. How Jesus quietly and lovingly absorbed all of this injustice and all of this violence of the cruel world and returned it only with love. Unconditional, everlasting, gracious love. What a story. Of course the Ethiopian eunuch wants to know more. Of course he wants to do something about that. This is great news. This is good news to the poor, to the outcast, to those who have been trampled by the powers that be. It is a story that still shocks and amazes those who have been bloodied in this world. It is a story that seems too good to be true when you're on the outskirts. And so the Ethiopian eunuch asks what is perhaps the most important question we can ask. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And I wonder if at this point, the text doesn't tell us one way or the other, but I wonder if at this point Philip paused, even for a second. I wonder if Philip paused at that question being asked. Because yes, God sent him directly here. Yes, God had him jog next to this chariot. Yes, God pointed out that there's a mission for him to do and he's doing what God has told him to do at this place with this person for this reason. But he also has a lifetime of religious practice. And that lifetime of religious practice has got a lot of answers to that question about what stands in the way. As did mine, right? I don't know how you grew up, but the system that I grew up in had a whole list of answers to that question. We had a whole list of answers of what stands in the way, right? If the eunuch would have asked someone in my church growing up, we would have, we would have held court for a while to tell them all the things that stood in the way. I mean, when I was growing up, what, what stands in the way of being baptized? Whew, buddy, I, you, you want an alphabetical order? I mean, do you drink, smoke, cuss, have sex outside of marriage? Do you hang out with people that do? Are you gay or are you a Democrat? Do you just look kind of like weird to us and we're not sure what to do with you? Have you signed off on every part of our theology that we've deemed is eternally necessary for all human beings who want to approach God? And that's just the beginning, right? There was a long list of things that practically stood in the way of even attending our boring church service, let alone being baptized into the family of God. I had a lot of answers. I've always had a lot of answers to that question. I took specific classes to teach people what those answers were. This is one of the most disruptive and dangerous questions you can ask a religious, question, a religious tradition. What keeps me from being qualified? What keeps me out of the family? It's an uncomfortable question. In fact, it is so uncomfortable, not just for us, but it always has been so uncomfortable for us, that people later went back and inserted an answer into this story in later copies of the scripture. You'll notice as we are reading through that there's like just skips over verse 37. And if you look in your Bible down in the footnotes, they probably say something about verse 37. And the, most, the oldest and most authoritative transcripts we have, there was no verse 37 there. Later, someone else added back in. When, when he asked the question, then the, Philip answers, if you believe with all your heart, you can be. The eunuch answered, I believe in Jesus Christ as God's son. It sounds a little mm, wooden, right? 
There's nothing wrong with believing in God with all of your heart, obviously. There's nothing wrong if the, if the eunuch said that. But by all evidence, that was never actually there, and we were just too uncomfortable with the fact that nothing was said. We can't help but put a qualifier on it. It's in our very nature, right? My, my daughter does this to me all the time. I, I try to make a habit with my daughter of not just kind of casually saying I love you, although we do say that a lot, or I try to say that a lot, but I try to say things more specific to her. I try to tell her that I will always love her no matter what. I try to tell her that I like her as well. I try to tell her that she's my favorite little girl in the whole world. I, I tell her all these kind of things, and sometimes she just accepts it. Sometimes. Oftentimes, because she's now like a seven-year-old teenager, it's accompanied with some kind of eye roll, which is her preloaded response to everything right now. Whatever muscle controls eye rolling, she's just she's getting a lot of working out. It's it's strong. The force is strong with this one. And she'll maybe say, I know, I know, and kind of cast it aside. But just as often, she looks for qualifiers. She can't just accept that I really mean that. She'll come up with some kind of scenario. Yeah, but what if, and she'll play out this scenario. What if I do this, or I don't do that, or what if this kind of person comes around, or what if, blah, 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 blah. What if we have, an, what if you guys have another baby girl? And, and, and then I just have cold sweats from her, and I say, that's not happening. Don't say that out loud. Don't worry. You know, we're safe, you know. Or she'll say, no, because I, I wasn't nice to brother today, or I didn't get to have a treat, and I had, or I had to do a timeout, or I didn't do whatever, and she's trying to find these reasons why she doesn't qualify anymore. She has a real problem accepting it without a qualifier, which is why I keep saying it to her. And I get it, because I'm the same way. I've spent most of my religious life putting qualifiers on God's unconditional love for me. I still do it. And I definitely do it for other people. And my guess is so do you. Because we are deeply distrusting of news this good. But here's the problem. Here's the real hard part of this story. The eunuch believed it. This could be really problematic. I can tell you as a preacher, this can be really problematic. You know, we say all kinds of things. We don't expect you to actually believe it or want to do something about it. Good Lord, then what would we do? Right? The eunuch actually believed it. And I really believe, I believe one of the chief reasons that we're here as a community, uh, specifically, but also one of our chief missions as, as the church at large, is to come to grips with this truth. There is no qualifier. The answer to what stands between me and getting baptized is always and only nothing. Nothing. Ever. Nothing stands between. There is no barrier between you and God's unconditional love and acceptance. Zero. Period. There is no barrier between the person you like the least and God's unconditional love and acceptance. None. Ever. You are already God's beloved. You are already accepted. You are already loved. You are already liked. You are already wanted. You are already God's beloved. I am already God's beloved. No qualifiers. 
It's just that good of news for us to accept or not. And I have this, this inkling that virtually every problem, uh, maybe in my own life, or every problem we have, or every injustice on this planet would at least partially be remedied if we really believe this. About ourselves and about each other. If in the deepest parts of our own hearts and souls and identity, we truly knew this deeply and truly understood that our own belovedness and that of every person we meet, even our enemies, maybe especially our enemies, because what sets us apart if not that? We are all beloved. There is nothing between you and the baptismal water. Even those who are as different and foreign and incomprehensible as you can imagine. Even those that don't fit into our definitions of how things should work. Even those that are different from you in every conceivable way. Even those at the ends of the earth. They're beloved. There's no barriers. Full stop. No exceptions. And if you're anything like me, that just it doesn't sit easy. I don't know how to not qualify that statement for myself and for others, and particularly for those I don't like. But this is the Christian message. Because at the end of the day, in this story, the only thing standing between the Ethiopian eunuch and the baptismal waters is Philip and his answer to the question. That's the only thing standing between And we find ourselves in that exact same position. So we must ask ourselves, how will we answer that question on the dusty road when it gets asked of us? Today, tomorrow, whatever day it gets asked. Let's pray.